Sermon text is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, every time New Year's rolls around, uh, I try to think of a, of a text, a standalone text, so to speak, that uh, might be fitting for us as we come to the new year to think of, of uh, things to either recommit to or to make a priority in our lives uh, as Christians. And I thought this text would be a good one to do just that. This uh, text here in the book of Hebrews, here the writer gives us, maybe you noticed the repetition of the phrase, uh, let us three times. He gives us in kind of rapid fire succession three things that we as believers and even in some ways more importantly we as a church should do in response to the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, because of the great confidence, that's the word he uses here, confidence or boldness, that we have been given to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ through the curtain of his flesh. That, uh, that phrase, the curtain, is an allusion uh, to the curtain that was in the temple. You might remember when Jesus was crucified, there was a great temple in the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and it was torn in two from top to bottom, Matthew 27:51 tells us. So uh, the, the tearing, so to speak, of Christ's flesh was represented by the tearing of that curtain, and that tearing of that curtain was a removal of a barrier. You might know that only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could go behind that curtain. Your average person, your average priest could never do it. Only one, only, only the great high priest could do that. And once a year and only that with blood. Well, in a sense, Jesus has removed all those barriers. That's what the, the apostle here is telling us. He's torn that, uh, his flesh in two uh, by the curtain which he calls his blood, his, his flesh. And because we have Christ himself as our great high priest... Uh, what should our grateful response be to that confidence that we now have to enter the, the holy places through Jesus Christ? He gives us three things. The first thing in verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Verse 22. Second thing, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 23. And lastly, let us consider one another in order to stir up unto love and good work. So these these three things, you could say, are kind of aspects of public worship. That's really what I think the author of Hebrews has in mind here. These are three aspects of the, pub, the public worship of the gathered church on the Lord's Day from week to week. When you and I worship the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we doing or what are we supposed to be doing? And we might be, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't sometimes go through the motions. We shouldn't. But worship should be characterized by those three things. First of all, it should be characterized by us drawing near to God. That's what we should be doing every Sunday when we worship here together, is drawing near to God together and doing it with confidence, not because of anything in us, but because of Christ himself. 
when we worship together as a church, one of the things that we do is confess our hope. We confess our hope in Jesus Christ, and part of our gathering for worship together should also consist, as the writer says, in considering one another so that we are all stirred up to love and good works in caring for each other as the family of Christ. All those three things, among other things, should be something that characterizes us when we meet for worship on the Lord's Day. That's, that's what should be involved in the public worship of the church and all of that to the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three things in order briefly, one at a time. The first thing the writer of the book of Hebrews exhorts us to do in worship out of gratitude for God's grace is to draw near. Look at verses 19 through 22 again. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence or boldness uh, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, or a great priest rather, over the house of God, here it is, let us draw near, and how do we do that? How do we draw near in Christ? With a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That The heart sprinkled and the bodies washed or cleansed, uh, I think it has a double a double implication here in some ways. I think the bodily cleansing, I think there is an allusion to baptism there, but not just to baptism. Uh, many commentators seem, seem torn on how much uh, to import that as dealing with baptism. I think it's both, uh, but drawing near with, with hearts sprinkled clean, that's the inward washing of the Holy Spirit of our hearts, and then our bodies washed with pure water. I think that's an, I think what he's getting at is beyond just baptism. I think he's getting at there's a cleansing for a believer inwardly and outwardly, the heart and the outward actions. I think that is what has in mind here. So part of us drawing near to God has to do with our hearts and our lives being sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. So when he says in the first, first word of that verse 19, he says, therefore, I think what he's doing is he's referring back to everything he said leading up to that point throughout the epistle of Hebrews. That's a lot of content, isn't it? The, first, the bulk of the first ten chapters is what he has gone through. And now he's saying, therefore, because of all that, we are to draw near and to, to, to hold fast to our confession and all of that. A.W. Pink, some of you might know who that is. He says these verses, quote, contain the apostles' transition from the doctrinal to the practical part of the epistle. In other words, you might, you might know from the book of Romans and Ephesians and whatnot that there is a tendency in the New Testament writings to spend the bulk of a time in, a, in one of the epistles on doctrine, on the grace of God and the gospel, and then after doing that, turning to our duties, turning, turning to how we should live in light of what we were just taught. So when you read the book of Romans, for example, it's a, much, it's a long book like Hebrews is, 16 chapters long, Paul, for the first 11 chapters of Romans, goes through in broad strokes the doctrines of the gospel and what God has done to save you from your sins in Jesus Christ. The first 11 chapters, that's what it deals with. Then in chapter 12, he starts and says, Therefore, in light of the mercies of God, offer your bodies up as living sacrifices. In other words, what's the response? What is a Christian's right, reasonable response to God out of gratitude for the grace of God in the gospel? Chapters 12 through 16 of Romans give us briefly how God would have us live in light of those truths in the gospel. The same thing is happening 
here in the book of Hebrews. The first ten chapters, most of it, is him telling us about these great privileges that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, the book of Hebrews was written by and large, as a reason it's called Hebrews, right? To a bunch of, of Jewish believers who had come out of Judaism and come to saving faith in Christ. And that came with a great cost. Their, their own people, their old associations with the temple and the synagogue were now done. We're now removed from them. We believe, most of us do, I think, that Hebrews was written before A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. And so they may have kind of longing, longingly looked back to the temple worship and thought they were missing out. And not only that, they were, they were kind of being ostracized from their own people in many cases. There was a cost for following Christ. And so Hebrews, what the writer does is he shows them how much better they have it in Jesus Christ than they ever had it under the old dispensation and the old ways of Judaism. That's what he is teaching us throughout this book. And then he says, as a response, he gets to these three things, among other things he says throughout the rest of the epistle. And so that is the order of, of the scriptures, the order of the gospel, that we are taught the doctrines of grace at length in the gospel. And then and only then do we turn our attention to the duties that flow forth from that as our grateful response to God's grace in our salvation. That has to be the right order that we observe these things in. You know, your duties, your living of the Christian life can only be built upon the solid rock of God's grace in Christ. Our faith in Christ and gratitude for God's mercies is the only right motivation, really, for living the Christian life. And if you get those things reversed, it's disastrous. We don't come to God by living a good life or trying to live a good life to earn God's grace. You can't ever do that. The only right motivation, the only right wellspring of obedience to Christ is gratitude for God's grace in the gospel. You could say that verses 19 through 21 of our text are kind of a brief summary of the significance or meaning of everything he has said in the book this far. So maybe you've read the book of Hebrews and said to yourself, some of this is really hard for me to understand. He's talking about the temple worship, which I don't have any grasp of. You know, I've, I've told, told people, I believe I told Wesley years ago when he was reading the Bible, when he got to Leviticus, you know, when you have those... Speaking of New Year's, you have these Bible reading plans. You want to read the Bible in a year, maybe once or twice. And if you read it in order, which is the way I like to do it, most of us, when you get to Leviticus and Numbers, it's like you hit a wall. You know, it's, you go from these interesting narratives of, of things that were happening to all of a sudden, even in the book of Exodus, you have descriptions of how to make different parts of the tabernacle and all these things that are, just seem so foreign to us you might as well, you know, it's hard to read them for some of us. And so what I said at times and what I've said, I think, to Wesley was, stop, go read Hebrews, and then go back to Leviticus. Because what, what Hebrews does is it gives you the significance of all those sacrifices and the Le Levitical system, the priesthood, all those things. It helps you understand what those were supposed to be foreshadowings of in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all those things, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, all of it. He's the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist when he saw him said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All those lambs, Hebrews tells you, I believe it's in chapter 9, verse 22, that the, it's impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, God had instituted those sacrifices for a reason, but they in and of themselves never took away sins. They pointed forward to the one who would. That was their purpose. And so the book of Hebrews basically says that the Old Testament uh, temple, that administration was now obsolete. 
it had served its purpose in full and was passing away. And we have greater privileges than they could ever have imagined if we're in Christ. So the summary of, of, of everything that he just said in the first 10 chapters is found in some ways in our own text. And what does he do there? He explains to us in brief terms the great privileges that we have in Jesus Christ by faith. That, that if we are in Christ by faith, and so have the very Son of God crucified, risen, and ascended to the right hand of God as our mediator and our great high priest, then we have what he says here in verse uh, 2021. We have what? Confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 19. So Jesus Christ, our Lord, he, he gives us access to God in the grace in which we stand. He alone can give us boldness and confidence to draw near to God. The author of the epistle of Hebrews says the same thing in, in many ways back in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. He uses some of the same words. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Same phrase. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then he says, Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. On our own, none of us is worthy of drawing near to God. In fact, on our own, our inclination is to hide from God, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And that's not without reason. God is holy on our own. We are not. Jesus and Jesus alone gives sinners like us the boldness, the confidence that we, can, that we need to be able to draw near to God with boldness. He says it back in chapter 4 regarding prayer, and he says it here in our text regarding corporate worship as the people of God. So because the Son of God is our great high priest, we have every reason to hold fast our confession because our great high priest is one who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses and yet is without sin, we have every reason to have confidence and draw near to the throne of grace in prayer. Again, he uses the same kind of phrases, same words in Hebrews 4 as he does in our, in our text. And the context is much the same as it is here in our text. Now, how is it that we may have confidence to draw near in worship? Again, look at verses 19 to 21. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's, a, that's an allusion to the temple as well, the holy places in the temple. How? Two things. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So through the blood of Jesus and through the, the flesh of Christ. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So it's the blood of Jesus and this new and living way that he himself has opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. In other words, as always, what does the scripture point us back to again and again? Not just the person of Christ, as important as that is, but the cross. His death, his, his vicarious sufferings for our salvation for our, from our sins, uh, that is what we're pointed back to. His blood being shed on the cross, his flesh being torn his body being broken for our sins, for our salvation. You know, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that it's Christ's body or flesh 
and his blood that we are constantly being pointed back to again and again as the source of all of our confidence as believers in drawing near unto God. Without that, we have no right to enter God's presence. But with it, with Christ's blood being shed and his flesh being torn for our salvation, we have every reason for confidence, not self-confidence, but confidence in Christ and the grace of God that we might draw near, draw near to God in a way that's acceptable to him and even pleasing to God. On our own, nothing we do is pleasing to God. But in Christ, by his grace and mercy, we can worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. If not for the cross of Christ and his full atonement for our sins, we could never hope to draw near to God in any way. In fact, we would never dare to draw near to God. It would, be, it, would be, it would be our biggest wisdom to try to hide from God, although God is everywhere and sees all things. You know, what, what did Adam do in the garden again when, when they sinned and fell into to sin in the Garden of Eden? They hid from God, and they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Neither one of those things uh, covered their nakedness or their, their sin. But if you're in Christ by faith, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you may draw near to God in worship, and you may draw near to God in prayer and do so boldly. That's kind of crazy talk to, to, for a sinner to draw near to God and do it boldly. And God inviting you to do so as the scripture does here in the book of, of Hebrews. Uh, Christ has opened for us a new and living way into the very holy places of God. Well, the second thing, the second thing that the writer of Hebrews in our text would have us to do because of God's grace in Christ is not just draw near, but hold fast to our confession. Look at verse 23 again. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The wavering is probably a hint of what was going on in some of these Jewish believers' hearts and lives. They were tempted to waver. They were tempted to think about going back to avoid the suffering and the persecution that they were enduring at the hands of of the unbelieving Jews at their time. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, hold fast your confession of faith in Christ and do so without wavering. You have greater privileges than you can possibly imagine by the grace of God in Christ. Now, notice that he does not just say, hold fast to your hope. That's implied, but he doesn't say, just hold fast to your hope. He says that we are to what? Hold fast the confession of our hope. Hope that's the confession of our hope. He doesn't have just our personal faith and hope in mind, although that's included. He has the public confession of our faith and hope in view here. The context, in our, in our text anyway, is really public worship, as we're going to see from verses 25 and following. And so one of the things that you and I as believers are called to do is to publicly, publicly confess our hope in Christ. To publicly confess it, to acknowledge it openly and outwardly. And one of the primary ways that we are to do that may be in some ways the primary way is to gather together for public worship on the Lord's Day. That may seem minimal to you. That may seem like, well, duh, it's Sunday we come to church. But that is one of the most, uh, really one of the primary ways that we confess our faith in Christ together is to gather and to gather on his day. Uh, Christianity, I've said this a number of times, but I think it bears repeating from time to time. Christianity is personal. 
We sometimes talk about it being a personal relationship with God. It's personal, but it's never private. Christianity is not a private religion. It's not just you and Jesus. It's Jesus and his church. Uh, There's no such thing as a private or secret Christianity. And what's the motivation for having that? Avoiding persecution. Avoiding suffering for the name of Christ. That's, we are always tempted to do that. To kind of hide our Christianity because we don't want to stick out. You know, what, do they say, what do they say about the, the nail that sticks out? That's the one that gets the hammer. right? We don't want the hammer. But Christianity is not private. Charles Hodge writes this. A moment's consideration of the nature of the religion of Jesus Christ must convince us of the impossibility of being a secret Christian. It's impossible, so don't try it. It's not a private thing. It's not meant to be a private thing. When you become a Christian, what does the Great Commission say? You know, go, go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism, among other things, is a marking of God separating you as his own. It's also a profession of faith in Jesus Christ in many ways. Um, Also in the Great Commission, we are taught to teach them to obey all the commandments that Jesus has given us. Obedience to Christ is another way that we are marked out as his people. You know, it's just the idea here is to gather church and public worship. Now, not only our life of consecration unto God and holiness and sanctification, trying to obey God in all things, according to his commandments, uh, that marks us out. But our public confession of faith and hope in Christ also mark us out as Christians and belonging to Jesus Christ. Hodge goes on to say this. The chief and most important mode of confession is attendance upon the ordinances of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Where do you find baptism properly anyway? Where do you find baptism in the Lord's Supper? The gathered church. Public worship on the Lord's Day. That's, that's really what he's going, going into here. So the, the idea in our text is most certainly the gathered church and public worship. In our day, you know, it may not seem like much to you, but in our day, one of the most countercultural things that you can do as a believer is to, is to obey the fourth commandment. To remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy and gather with the church for worship. One of the things that, that we do or should be doing when we gather on the Lord's Day every week is to confess our hope in Christ together. The public worship of the people of God in the local church involves not just the confessing of our faith as we did earlier in the service when we recited the Apostles' Creed, but in some ways the very act of gathering together to worship Christ is itself a maintaining of the confession of our hope, a holding fast to it. So as he says, let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, he says in verse 25, but joyfully confess as we are able to do so our hope in Christ every week on the Lord's day by gathering with our brothers and sisters in the Lord for worship. Now there are some that are unable to do so, whether it be from infirmity, age, sickness, and whatnot. That is not what the writer of Hebrews has in mind here. There are times when we can't, but uh, we should make it our high priority to gather together whenever we can to confess Christ. Well, there's a third thing. The third thing that we were exhorted to do in our text is to consider one another. Look at verses 24 to 25 once more. It says there, And let us consider how to stir up one another 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, a more woodenly literal way of rendering that verse in verse 25 would be something like this, or verse 24, rather, would be something like this. And let us consider one another for the stirring up of love and good works. That's, that's a literal way of translating that, that verse. Let us consider one another for the stirring up of love and good works. In other words, either way it includes us. Most, most of the way I, that I read some of the translations makes it sound like our only goal in considering other people is to stir them up to love and good works. I don't think that's the, the only implication of, our, of that verse. I think we are to stir each other up, including ourselves, unto love and good works. We, too, are the ones who need to be stirred up unto love and good works, not just other people. Uh, love and good works is another way of speaking of the Christian life in obedience to Christ. And we all need encouragement in that way. So that this should be a high priority for us when we gather for worship and ought to be a part of our motivation in gathering every Lord's Day. We should be just as concerned for the well-being and growth and grace of our brothers and sisters in Christ as we are for our own. I hope that when you come here to worship every, every Lord's Day that you are built up personally in the faith, that you, are, you find yourself growing in the grace of Jesus Christ but it shouldn't stop there, because if we're really growing in the grace of Christ, we'll make it a priority to help other people around us in the church grow in Christ. We should be just as concerned for the well-being and edification of our brothers and sisters as we are for our own. When we gather for worship, it's not just about us. It's not just about me, myself, and I. Our concern first should be for the Lord's glory, and secondly, for, for the good of each other. Without that, why gather? Then you could just have church all by yourself. Other than that, right? You could stay at home, just you and your Bible and Jesus and not mind anybody else. Um, that what this means is that public worship of the church on the Lord's Day must be about more than what you yourself get out of it. I hope you get something out of it, but it's got to be about more than that. How often do we in our age approach worship with a self-centered mindset? How many look First, to how a church might serve them and meet their needs rather than seeking how they themselves might serve others in the church in some way. Like I said, I hope, I hope that in some ways your needs are very much met at church. Uh, but we should be looking to meet the needs of others as well. We should be looking to serve. What can we do uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just so we can get out of something when we come? It's no accident when you read through the letters of the New Testament, that whenever Paul addresses the public worship of the church, his thoughts always seem to tend towards the one another aspects of the church and how vital they are to the right life and growth of a church. For example, look at Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you. That word you is plural. It's like you all. Let the word of Christ dwell in you or among you richly, and here it is, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There, there is an aspect of public worship, the gathered church, where it's not just me as the pastor or whoever's preaching that given Sunday doing all the teaching. Now, you may never feel like you're a teacher, 
but in some ways, we are to teach and even admonish, Paul says, one another in all wisdom. And even our singing. There's a one another aspect to our singing. Let that be a motivation next time we sing a hymn in church. That we sing to God first and foremost, but we also sing to encourage one another in the faith. So according to Paul there, our conversation in the church and even our singing are not only to be saturated by scripture and the word of God, but they must also be intended for mutual edification. We should have our mind in some ways set on edifying and building each other up in our conversation at church as well as in our singing. Concerning verse 25 and following, we're not going to look at the whole text past verse 25, but A.W. Pink again writes this, kind of shockingly in some ways. He says, we have now reached, in verse 25, we have now reached one of the most solemn and fear-inspiring passages to be found not only in this epistle, but in all the word of God. And he further notes that verse 25 forms the transition between the subject of Christian perseverance, which we're looking at in our text mainly, treated in verses 23 and 24, and that of apostasy, which is developed in verse 26 and onwards. That's, that's where he's going. He's contrasting persevering in the faith which, with those who apostatize for one reason or another. The ESV, I think, in this particular case, doesn't really bring forth the force of the word that Paul uses in verse uh, 25 as well as it could. Verse 25 in our text, it talks about neglecting to meet together, that some was their habit of neglecting to meet together. Um, The word that Paul uses, I think, has a much more forceful meaning to it, and I think the King James and New American Standard put it well when they speak of forsaking or abandoning to meet together. I think that's, that's the real force of the word that Paul is using here. It has a much much more negative ethical connotation. It's a turning your back on public worship, not just the occasional missing of it or simple neglect. When I hear the word neglect, maybe when you hear it, it doesn't sound quite so strong. It just sounds like, well, maybe you weren't quite as mindful as you should be. He's talking about forsaking it and turning your back on it entirely. And he says this because when the writer of Hebrews speaks of forsaking the assembly of the saints, he's not simply talking about skipping church. He's talking about apostasy, which is evidenced by leaving the church altogether. Those, those two things go together. To forsake the gathered church in the circumstances in which Hebrews is written amounts to apostasy or falling away from the faith. That's, that's the contrast he's making here in our text and the verses that follow. That's why he speaks here of holding fast the confession, the outward confession of our hope, rather than just holding fast our hope, which is an individual and inward thing. One commentator notes this well. He says, He who does not love his fellow Christians fervently from the heart, 1 Peter 1.22, feels no compelling need to associate himself with them. Indeed, the genuineness of the Christian profession of a man in this state must be seriously suspect for those who are one in Christ cannot help loving one another. Part of our motivation for gathering together on the Lord's Day is simply love for the brethren. And it has been said, uh, well said, I believe, that no one can truthfully be said to love Christ if he hates the bride of Christ, which is the church. You ever have a best friend and they're married and 
you, you, you say you're his best friend, but you hate his wife. How, does he, how would he feel about that if that were the case? You wouldn't be his best friend very long if that were the case and he knew about it. And that would be right to be the, the case in his particular situation. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times since I've been in Ramona, uh, these, what, 11 years or whatever it is now, I, I can't tell you how many times I've run across believers, professing Christians, who with one breath, when they find out I'm a pastor, tell me uh, they're a Christian, oh, they're a believer, and the very next breath, what do, they th- what do you think they tell me? What, are the, what question do they expect me to ask them? Oh, where do you, where do you meet for worship? Where, what church are you a part of? And in almost every case, they say, well, I don't. I don't have time. They don't. They kind of that conversation kind of ends there. They profess Christ, but they don't gather anywhere. They have forsaken in some ways the assembly. And I have to say, uh, you know, it, it may sound judgmental on my part, but one of my first thoughts is much like that commentator says: when somebody tells me I'm a Christian, but I got nothing to do with the church, my first thought is, I wonder if you're really a Christian. You may be. You know, sometimes for a time we we backslide and we do things we shouldn't do and and skip church for a time, but fall into bad habits. But if someone professes Christ and avoids the church like the plague, that's a warn. That's a red light should be going off. That warning signal should be warning bell should be going off in your head. There's something not right. If you love Christ, you can't hate His church. If you love your brethren, you should be associating with them. First John chapter three, verse fourteen says this. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 20-21, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he, can see, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what the Ten Commandments are set up to, isn't it? Love God and love for neighbor. Love God and love for brother. And so I asked this morning, uh, and this is, I know this is kind of preaching to the choir in some ways because you're all sitting here, but do you love other Christians? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you rejoice to be around them on the Lord's Day and whenever possible? It's strange indeed to suppose that you can love the brethren if you avoid them like the plague and and avoid the gathered church. In Christ alone, sinners like you and me have confidence, should have confidence, to draw near unto God for salvation, to draw near unto God in prayer, and to draw near, as we're doing even this morning, I hope, uh, draw near to God in worship. And it's only by the blood of Jesus that we may draw near and are told to draw near, even commanded in this text to draw near. So as if God knows how, how sheepish we are, no pun intended, how, how hesitant we are on our own to draw near, he commands us to do it if we are in Christ. So if you're in Christ by faith this morning, rejoice at your great salvation you have by God's mercy alone in Christ, and then draw near, not just by yourself, but together on the Lord's day, having your hearts and bodies sprinkled clean, by his blood and spirit, let us hold, confess, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and let us consider one another for the stirring up of love and good works. And may the Holy Spirit work in each one of us in this coming year what's pleasing in his sight, that we might more and more in this coming year learn to make gathering together for public worship the highlight of our week, that in doing so we might draw near to God, 
hold fast the confession of our hope before a watching world and consider each other for mutual edification in the faith to the glory of God. Amen.